Hello. Greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. Thank you for the gift of spending time with us as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through Scripture. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. And we want to be of service to you in any way we can in Christ. Please subscribe to us where you found us. Reach out to the comments. Let us know what you think. And if you, we can be of any service, reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. The word of God came to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 65, beginning in verse 16. Whoever pronounces a blessing in the earth will do so in the name of the faithful God. Whoever makes an oath in the earth will do so in the name of the faithful God. For past problems will be forgotten. I will no longer think about them. For look, I am ready to create new heavens and a new earth. The former ones will not be remembered. No one will think about them anymore. But be happy and rejoice forevermore over what I am about to create. For look, I am ready to create Jerusalem to be a source of joy, and her people to be a source of happiness. Jerusalem will bring me joy, and my people will bring me happiness. The sound of weeping or cries of sorrow will never be heard in her again. Never again will one of her infants live just a few days, or an old man die before his time. Indeed, no one will die before the age of 100. Anyone who fails to reach the age of 100 will be considered cursed. They will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build a house only to have another live in it, or plant a vineyard only to have another eat its fruit. For my people will live as long as trees. My chosen ones will enjoy to the fullest what they have produced. They will not work in vain, or give birth to children that will experience disaster. For Yahweh will bless their children and their descendants. Before they even call out, I will respond. While they are still speaking, I will hear. A wolf and a lamb will graze together. A lion, like an ox, will eat straw, and a snake's food will be dirt. They will no longer injure or destroy on my entire royal mountain, says Yahweh. And also, at the very end of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. For just as the new heavens and the new earth I am about to make will remain standing before me, says Yahweh, so your descendants and your name will remain. From one month to the next, and from one Sabbath to the next, all people will come to worship me, says Yahweh. They will go out and observe the corpses of those who rebelled against me, for the maggots that eat them will not die, and the fire that consumes them will not die out. All people will find the sight abhorrent. When we consider the higher textual criticism of Isaiah, there are certainly two portions of the book. There's Isaiah 1-39, through and then there's Isaiah 40-66. through uh, and most scholars would suggest there's threefold authorship, or maybe a twofold authorship. There's a division of first Isaiah, the edited version of what the eighth century prophet Isaiah said in the first thirty-nine chapters, with that those last four chapters being that kind of historical uh, recapitulation of the events of the time. A second Isaiah, also known as Deutero Isaiah, who would be an anonymous prophet writing around the end of the exile, somewhere around five fifty to five forty B.C., and that would be in Isaiah forty through fifty-five. Or and the third Isaiah, also known as Trito Isaiah, another anonymous prophet writing immediately after the exile, somewhere around 520 B.C. in Isaiah 56 through 66. And there is, of course, a scholarly case, very seriously scholarly case, that can be made that second and third, or Deutero and Trito Isaiah, are the same person, the second Isaiah. Now, we do not need to suggest that there are actually multiple prophets, because in Isaiah 8 and verse 16, Isaiah was told to seal up at least part of his message. And that might be what we have in Isaiah 40-66. through 66. 
But even if uh, we recognize a single author, we do need to confess that there are two audiences at least. That uh, Isaiah's audience in Isaiah 4 through 66 comes well after the 8th century BC. Uh, and uh, the audience of Isaiah 65 and 66 is at the end of the exile or very much post-exilic. So what uh, Isaiah is saying here is his final message of prophetic hope to all Israel to the Israelites who had come generations after him, to Israel after they would have experienced exile and likely will have returned, trying to sustain them in hope. And Isaiah has simultaneously condemned the wicked who did not call upon God, and he also has promised restoration and renewal for those who did trust in him in earlier part of Isaiah 65 in verses 1 through 15. And now in verses 16 through 25 and at the end of 66, he is setting forth this new image for the hope of what God would accomplish for his people. And he begins... This beautiful section here uh, in verses 16 through 25 with all of these illustrations talking about this uh, new creation. Very deliberately evoking the creation narrative of Genesis 1, 1 through 31. He talks about how the trials and distress of the previous creation will no longer infringe on this new creation. That Jerusalem will rejoice and be glad. That its inhabitants will live for a very long time. That somebody who doesn't make a hundred years old will be considered cursed. That they're going to dwell in security. They're not going to have the risk of having enemies enjoy the fruit of their labor the way they've been living in the past. The new creation is not going to experience futility. That children are not going to endure disaster. That Yahweh will know and answer them before they need to speak. And he evokes this image of predator and prey dwelling together in security, that they're all eating plants, as we can see in Isaiah 11, 7 through 9 as well, regarding uh, what would happen when the, the king, the branch of David, uh, Jesse, would come about. What we do with verse 25, that the snakes would be dirt, uh, could be an allusion to Genesis 3.15 that Satan is being humiliated, but also maybe concrete terms that snakes are no longer attacking and eating prey, but somehow being sustained by dirt. Or maybe we don't need to read a lot of uh, negative connotations into what dirt is. Now just, if we step back and consider this illustration, and consider this idea, this new heavens and new earth, where there's going to be nothing but joy, uh, long life, prosperity, no risk of enemies, God's going to be there for them, uh, there's going to be this, this peace everywhere. Uh, imagine how this audience, the people who had endured enemies, exile, return in weakness, uh, how glorious this picture must have looked for them, and how beautiful it was for them, and how much they would have held on to that. Isaiah will go on to uh, exalt the humble and the contrite. They would see God's salvation and vindication and judgment and condemnation would come against the arrogant and that God would gather all of his people from all the places they had been scattered in Isaiah 6, 6, 1 through 21. And then at the very end of his message, he's got this uh, uh, image of the new heavens and new earth he returns to again. That as these will stand, so the descendants of these humble, contrite Israelites will also stand and remain. That everyone is going to come and prostrate before uh, God weekly and monthly. But it's a very dark image that this message concludes with. That all the people are going to go out and see all these uh, maggot-infested, burning corpses of those who rebelled against Yahweh. That's going to be a very abhorrent sight. 
And in this way, God is speaking through Isaiah of a new heavens and a new earth, of judgment and deliverance. And what are we supposed to make of it? Right? When are we supposed to uh, see this uh, prophetic hope about new heavens and new earth find its fulfillment? And we want to normally figure out when it would be fulfilled. Uh, but there's no particular moment with this prophecy that we can see uh, that it fits perfectly. Uh, we can certainly see, and, it, no, and everyone in Israel recognizes that there's not a time in Second Temple uh, Judaism where Israel would consider this fulfilled. They were constantly beset by foes. Uh, we can uh, maybe want to see, hey, well, Jesus is coming, Jesus came, and you can see uh, that uh, the same stuff that's being said about what would happen when uh, Isaiah 11, when Jesus would come, uh, the Christ would come, about the uh, wolf and lamb grazing together, things like that. That's certainly being fulfilled there. You can see the idea of hope and joy here. Um, all this is going on here. Uh, so you can see uh, some idea of how this is finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, Peter and John are going to use this message in 2 Peter 3.13 and Revelation 21.1 and 2. And they see it recognized in the post-resurrection future. They're looking forward to a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, even early Christian commentators could see that there are a lot of the things that Isaiah sees that do find its fulfillment in Christ and in his church. And uh in the rest given after death but before the resurrection. So in Revelation 7, 9 through 17, John uh, imagines these uh, saints surrounding the throne of God, and there's no more weeping or sighing, and uh, God wipes their, a tear from their eyes. I mean, it's it's a it's going to be the same message in Revelation 21 that everybody experiences, and, but in chapter 7, it's for the faithful dead in Jesus. And a lot of the details that are given here are exactly congruent with the resurrection. I mean, Isaiah talks about how no one's going to die before the age of 100 and women are still giving birth. Yet Jesus says in the resurrection, uh, people will not be uh, given in marriage or taking in marriage. And uh, John and, and everything about the resurrection, uh, and Paul and everybody, uh, imagines the resurrection being a continual thing, that there will be no more death, that death has been fully defeated. And there's a tension even within the prophecy itself. Uh, in Isaiah 65 and verse 17, Isaiah says, there's not going to be remembrance of any of the former things. And anything that happened beforehand would no longer be known, right? But all the nations and everybody in Isaiah 66 and verse 24 are going to see all these corpses of those that God had judged. Well, if there's no memory of the former things, how is everybody going to understand that all these corpses are from those who God has judged? You'd think that all be kind of swept away, uh, eliminated. At the same time, we can make spiritual applications of the prophecy. And we can see a spiritual application is fulfilled in Jesus' kingdom. We can understand why Peter and John want to understand the tenor of this prophecy as still looking for its fulfillment uh, in the future. A time and place of no more misery, pain, distress, and instead one of prosperity and peace. Now, a lot of the bones and contention here about the new heavens and the new earth, imagery, uh, especially the way used uh, by Peter and John, involve uh, kind of our assumptions and presumptions about cosmology, how we imagine the creation, the whole cosmos, uh, the order of things, and how it works. There's an understanding that a lot of people have that Isaiah would be expecting a complete annihilation of what has come before. 
And especially when you look at uh, the way Peter looks at an expectation of everything being destroyed by heat uh, to an elemental level in Second Peter 3. Uh, and also in Revelation 21, 1 and 2, where John says that the former heavens and earth, you know, uh, fled away and there's now a new heavens and earth. Uh, the, the former one is no more. Well, one of the things that the Greek expositors want to hasten to remind us about the use of new, and new heavens and new earth in Second Peter 3 and Revelation, is that the term is not new in quality, uh, is new in quality more than time. Uh, that it's more of a renewal or a transformation than something completely brand spanking new. And furthermore, the way that Isaiah, and especially Peter, understand cosmology is not the same that we do today. And we can understand this in a, in a very careful reading of what Peter is saying in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he's introduced this whole conversation because uh, blatant scoffers are going to come in the last day, he says in verse 3, uh, asking, where is his promised return? For ever since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter goes on to say, For they deliberately suppressed this fact. But by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. And through these things the world existing at that time was destroyed when it was deluged with water. But the, by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire by being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, this is a detail that we might kind of skip over quickly because of what we understand about modern science and the cosmology, where you know, we're told that the universe has existed uh, maybe 13 billion years ago is when the Big Bang happened. Uh, and so when we understand what happened with the flood, we go back and we read in Genesis that, okay, Noah and his family build the ark. They all get in the ark. It rains and it rains and it rains and it rains. Uh, 40 days and nights, everything is covered. And then the waters begin to recede. And finally, you know, after getting the, the dove with the freshly picked olive leaf, Noah knows to open uh, uh, the gates. And, and, and now all of a sudden, everybody can go back on the land. And when we look at that, we understand there is a significant devastation. But we would not say, well, that was the end of that heavens and earth. Because we can see a great devastation and a lot of death, a lot of mayhem, a lot of difficulty, but the stuff that remains, you know, the, the world that Noah kind of landed on was a different type of world than the world beforehand, but we would never say that it was a completely different creation. But look at how Peter talks about it, that there was this heavens and earth previously. They were destroyed and now there's a present heavens and earth that he distinguishes in quality from the previous one. And so we need to be open to seeing that just like Peter sees the creation before the flood as qualitatively different than the creation after the flood and says that the current creation is therefore reserved for fire, that whatever that purging of that fire requires in that cosmology may mean that the new heavens and earth is a transformation, again, just like there was a post-flood transformation of the world, but that it will also endure.
And we should consider in this light what Jerome uh, uh, of the 4th, 5th century has to say about Isaiah 65, 66, 4th century. Those who interpret the new heaven and earth to be a change for the better, rather than the destruction of the elements, cite this passage. You founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. They will grow old like a garment, and you will roll them up like cloth, and they will all be changed. This is from Psalm uh, 102. In this psalm is demonstrated clearly a perdition and destruction that is not an annihilation, but a transformation for the better. Neither does what is written elsewhere indicate that there will be a complete destruction of what was there at the beginning, but rather a transformation. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sun's light will be strengthened sevenfold, Isaiah 30:26. And that this may be better understood, let us use an example from our own human condition. When an infant grows into a boy, and a boy into an adolescent, and an adolescent into a man, and a man into an old man, the same person continues to exist throughout his succession of ages. For he remains the same man as he was, even though it can be said that he has changed a little and that the previous ages have passed away. Understanding this truth, the Apostle Paul said, for the form of this world is perishing in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31. Notice that he said the word form, not substance. And that comes from Jerome's commentary on Isaiah 18 uh, section 13. So the newness of the new heavens and new earth may be more a transformation than the result of annihilation. And we must therefore allow the prophetic and apostolic cosmology inform how we understand these passages, as opposed to kind of just imposing our own way of looking at cosmology upon this passage. And maybe the challenge that we're having with the new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65 and 66 is that we are expecting this kind of one-time thing as a kind of very static fulfillment, as opposed to perhaps a more dynamic fulfillment, which we see about a lot of passages when it comes to hope and salvation in the New Testament, uh, now and not yet paradigm. And so we can presume a post-exilic audience for Isaiah 65 and 66. We can therefore presume that the hope of the fulfillment would begin with Jesus and with his lordship. That in Christ, Jerusalem uh, becomes a place of happiness, a place where all come to prostrate before God, where God's eternal purpose in Christ is made manifest. Like we can see in Ephesians 3, like we see pulling out here in Isaiah 66. In Christ, the work of the believer is not in vain in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That the spiritual prosperity and wealth of believers is held securely, and it's not going to be enjoyed by anyone else. Uh, in Matthew 6, 19-20, and 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. That God knows what we need before we ask, and the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, even when we are not aware of it in Matthew 6, 8, Romans 8, 26 and 27. And that Isaiah 11 even finds its spiritual fulfillment in people of predator and prey nations both coming together in Christ and sharing in the faith of Christ. That there's no longer violence done in Zion, just like in Isaiah 65, 25, that we can see that in the church, where we have people of all kinds of nations, some uh, more on the oppressor side, some more on the oppressed side, uh, all sharing in the same faith of Christ and building up one another. And so in all these ways, we can see how in Christ and his kingdom, we're seeing the fulfillment of what Isaiah sees in the new heavens and new earth. But while we have that victory in Christ, we still have the foes 
that we are beset by. We still have the distress that we're living under. We're still subject to death and decay. We're still in the former things in that sense. And so just like Peter and John envision, when Jesus returns in judgment, we're going to see the full transformation and manifestation of the new heavens and the new earth in the resurrection. And at that point, the former things will indeed be done away. We're going to be transformed from mortality. The creation is set free from its bondage to death and decay, as so powerfully seen in Romans 8, 17-25, and the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21 and verse 4. In Isaiah's portrayal of long life for people, it might be a figure for immortality in the resurrection. Uh, the people are no longer going to suffer the curses of the creation uh, as it is currently constituted. And John is very much evoking this prophetic hope uh, of Isaiah 65, 16 and following in Revelation 21, 4, by saying that the former things are passing away and there's going to be no more pain. Uh, John clearly has Isaiah in mind here. Uh, even the viscerally disgusting imagery of Isaiah 66, 24, with all these dead bodies, has its place. Uh, it might help us understand why Jesus constantly is referring to this Gehenna, uh, the burning trash pit. And the fact that in Revelation 21, 8 and 22, 15, when talking about all the glorious things for the righteous, uh, John will still make note of the perdition in which the uh, unredeemed are going uh, and the fate of the wicked uh, and how that will be manifest. And so I hope that we can see that many of the hang-ups that we have with understanding uh, what Isaiah means by this new heavens and new earth is coming more from a failure of imagination. Uh, an expectation of a kind of static one-to-one fulfillment, as opposed to seeing how God is dynamically bringing to pass all that he has promised in Jesus. That we can have a spiritual life in Jesus now because he, as our king, reigns on the throne. We can participate in the joy of Zion in the church, and we can all serve God. But the ways of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells is embodied, of course, by Jesus and should be embodied by his people. But we await the complete satisfaction an embodiment of that prophetic hope. In the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the transformation uh, will come in redemption of the people of God and God's creation. There'll be eternal life in the resurrection. We're not going to need to remember the former things. We'll have relief from the curse and pain and joy in the presence of God for all eternity. And so indeed we can cry out, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they can have access to the tree of life and can enter into the city by the gates, just as John says in Revelation. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us, the hope that we have in Christ, uh, for the life you've given us in Jesus. And we pray that we may uh, do all things to your glory and honor. We're thankful for the Spirit, the word for one another for the uh creation for uh everything that we have that we know comes from you uh, the physical world and also the spiritual realm we pray father for those who are afflicted and as we still are in the former things uh we pray for those who are ill that you would heal them we pray that you would comfort and strengthen those in pain and distress and grief that you would provide for those who are in need, that you would preserve life wherever it is in danger. We pray that the powers and principalities would submit to you and seek to accomplish your purposes, and that all may come to a knowledge of your truth and be saved. Uh, Father, we uh, look and take heart at the hope of the new heavens and new earth, and we look forward to the hope of, of renewal in the resurrection. We earnestly look forward to the day your Son will return and will inaugurate uh, that wonderful, blissful time and that we will all be able to share in your glory and in your peace and in your love and no longer have any pain or distress and find comfort, strength, and, and glory and honor in you forevermore. 
Maranatha, indeed, our Lord Jesus, come. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So glad that you've joined us. would love to hear your thoughts about what we've talked about here today. Uh, if you have any questions or comments about uh, the new heavens and new earth, uh, please let us know. Uh, if you would like to talk more about these things or other things, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.